Welcome to the Eden Podcast, where we think again about the Bible on women and men, and we start with the correct understanding of what happened in the Garden of Eden back in the beginning. Today we'll be hearing from Bruce C.E. Fleming, founder of the True 316 Project. He's a former academic dean and professor of practical theology. The foundation of the True 316 Project is based on the research of Dr. Joy Fleming, who wrote the book, Man and Woman in Biblical Unity, Theology from Genesis 2 to 3. Do you know what the 11 Hebrew words mean that God spoke to the woman in the Garden of Eden? Bruce and Joy put that and more in the Book of Eden, Genesis 2 to 3. We invite you to get a copy today and make sure you have a solid foundation for understanding the seven key passages on women and men in the Bible. It turns out when Genesis 3.16 becomes clear, all the other passages become clear too. You can learn more at our website, true316.com. That's tru316.com. And now enjoy today's episode of The Eden Podcast. The focus of this episode is Ephesians 5.15 to 21, Study Guide 2, and we're using this from Beyond Eden, Chapter 2, and it corresponds to the paperback on page 27. You know, I've I've used all three formats in preparing this passage, going through the paperback version. A little while ago, I was going through the Kindle version, and uh, I was listening to the uh, audiobook, Audible version. And it reminded me of, of about four weeks into our study time in France. We were in the French Alps, and our teacher was trying to get us up to speed and, and get us talking French and ask for any volunteers. And Joy and I volunteered, and she took us to her home, well, her parents' home in central France for um, a dinner there. And she called it, now we couldn't talk very much French, <laughs> so we, we couldn't discuss very much, and we couldn't quite understand what she was trying to invite us to either. But it turned out to be a very traditional French meal, uh, put on by her parents in a little tiny home with a little tiny kitchen, a little tiny little living room. And uh, so they came in with the, the meal, we thought. And uh, they had these little tiny plates, and on these little tiny plates were these little tiny slices of ham rolled up. Very nice, very pungent ham. And we were very hungry. And we'd driven a long way to get there in central France in the mountains. And so we were ready to eat. And here were these little tiny pieces of ham on these tiny plates. And we weren't sure what to do. So is this it? So we ate the ham. And then we asked, could we have seconds? And they kind of seemed to be surprised that we would do that. But they were kind, and they said, yes, we, yeah, sure, of course. You know. So then we kind of wondered if we should have thirds, <laughs> because that didn't fill us up very much. What we didn't know was that there was a seven-course meal coming, and this was the first course, uh, just to kind of get your uh, saliva going. And so we, we had the ham, and, and you don't fill up on that. Instead, later on, there's the soup, and there's the, you know, there's all, there's the vegetables, and there's a, oh, it was a wonderful meal. And we really had a hard time getting it all down because we had eaten too much of the ham. Well, this is the way I feel looking at this passage in Ephesians 5 and 6. It is a seven-course meal. And if you're like unwitting new French students in a foreign country, you might have a hard time getting through this passage because uh, there is the, uh, 
the first little bit and then there's a, a, some more and then there's some more and then oh wow here comes the full stuff and and so we've got to look at the patterns that are lined up here it's not a seven course meal but it's actually more complicated than that so in our study on the chapter we've talked about a lot of the patterns here and we're going to go through the study guide to review that so here is the introduction on page 27 Many people hope to get an answer right away when they rush to certain verses in Ephesians 5. But in doing so, they can miss the start of their answer. As a result, they can end up getting their wrong answer out of context if they cut off the first part of the passage or if they cut off the last part of the passage. For example, chapter breaks included centuries after the Bible was written can be helpful to the reader, but some of them badly interrupt the thought that is being developed such as the insertion of an unfortunate chapter break right after the key point of Ephesians 5.15-6.9 to 6, 9 at the end of chapter 5. Paul wrote the second half of Ephesians in six passages that each begin with two Greek words, therefore, and walk. The fifth, therefore, walk passage is found in Ephesians 5.15-6.9. to 6, 9. Watch out for any study of Ephesians 5-6 to 6 that does not recognize the beginning and end of this passage, because if they miss the complete passage, they can very easily misinterpret the meaning of the verses inside the passage. So, Joanne, let's go into the exercises. I have Joanne Hegemeyer with us, and she's the one who wrote these the questions in the study guide. How are you doing, Joanne? I'm doing great, and I'm pretty excited about what we're about to embark on. We're going to identify the structures that Paul builds into Ephesians 4 through 6. And so we're not going to go too into it right now. But I just wanted to mention the six therefore walk passages. The first one starts in chapter 4, and it's 1 through 16, and then comes 17 through 32. That's the second therefore walk. The third one starts in Ephesians 5. It's verses 1 through 6. And then the fourth one starts in verse 7 and goes to 14. The one you and I are very interested in, that's the fifth therefore walk, and it's Ephesians 5, 15, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9. And then finally, the last one starts in chapter 6, verse 10, and goes to verses 20. So what we really want to do is summarize Paul's patterns of fours in Ephesians 5, 15 through 6, 9. And so we're going to start with verses 15 through 18 with the key idea in verse 18. So the first pattern of fours stood out to me pretty quickly as I began studying the passage. And I'll just read through them. The first pattern, or the first pair of four uh, verbs here. Don't be unwise walkers, be wise walkers. That's in 515b. Then in 516, don't be thoughtless, make the most of your time. 517, don't be foolish, understand the will of the Lord. And then 518, the fourth one, don't be controlled by wine, be being filled with the Spirit. The first three contrasting pairs are commands. And we put exclamation points in print after imperatives like these because they're strong words. So don't do these three things. Do these other three things. Then we get down to the fourth one, and the pattern is modified a little bit. He continues with, don't be controlled by wine. But then he says, be being filled with the Spirit. And as I continued on through this pattern of fours, I began to realize that the, the fourth four in each pattern was the most important one. Not only was it the most important one, but the next set of four built on and described what that fourth one meant. So it's very important to get up to 518, be being filled with the Spirit. And then he's going to explain after that in the next section what that means. 
Well, that does bring us to another pattern of fours, and we see it in 19 through 21 with the key idea, as you say, in verse 21. So in verse 19, we begin to figure out what it means to be being filled with the Spirit. A lot of people take verse 18 all by itself, and they talk about, oh, be filled with the Spirit, which is, which is right. It's very important. But then they don't pay attention to the next verses, and they come up with all kinds of things that they put in there as being the meaning of what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit. But it's better to let Paul tell us what to, what's going on here. What does it mean, according to Paul, to be filled with the Spirit? Well, according to Paul, there's four things that we do. First, we are speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Next, we're singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. Then we're giving thanks always to God, unto God the Father and in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 21, we're submitting ourselves one to another in the in the fear of Christ. The interesting thing about this is that this section of fours is built up not as a, as a set of paired imperatives, like in the first set of fours, but this set of fours is built as a, as a small chiasm, a small rainbow. So we have an A, B, B prime, A prime pattern. We have speaking in verse 19a and submitting in verse 21. These are two parallel ideas. And in the middle, we have two things that we do to the Lord. I puzzled over this word speaking in verse 19. I wanted to know more what that meant. What, you know, how do we speak to one another? Well, we do it with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So we've got scriptural content that we do when we're speaking to one another. But I found in Colossians 3.16, a parallel passage. Now, Colossians and Ephesians, it looks like they were sent out at the same time. And the church in one town was supposed to read the letter assigned to them, like to Colossae, and then the church letter that went out to the other place was also supposed to be read maybe the next Sunday. And so you could get commentary on one book, Ephesians, from the other book, Colossians, and that's exactly what we get here. So in Ephesians 5, 19a, speaking, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, we go to Colossians 3, 16, and we see psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But there we have two words in the place of the one word speaking. The two words we have there are teaching and admonishing. All right, teaching means to tell for the first time or to remind, and admonish means to bring back in line what we've been teaching or to correct someone who's gone astray from what we've been teaching. So let's go back then to 19a. That means speaking or teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That means that anybody that's filled with the Spirit is called and gifted by the Holy Spirit to teach one another and to correct one another. Now, this correcting aspect is important because when you get down to tw verse 21, you, you get a better idea what's happening. Verse 21, it says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. Why would he say submitting? Well, in the beginning, in verse 19a, he's, we're teaching one another and we're correcting one another. And how are we supposed to respond to that? We're supposed to submit to the teaching we're getting and to the correction we're getting. And then in the middle, we've got the giving thanks to God and the Father uh, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And above that, we've got singing and making melody in our heart to the Lord. So the pattern is A and A prime talks about to one another. And B and B prime is toward God. Wow, that really opens up verse 21 a lot. 
We still have another pattern of force to talk about, and that's found in verses 22 through 31. And then there's a key idea in verse 32. Right. And I want, to, want us to picture now what happens by the illustration that we've given before. And that is that this passage is a jump, jump, high jump pattern. The first jump is 515 to 18. The second jump is 519 to 21. And then we have a high jump. And that goes from 22 all the way over to 69. And if you want to make this design like a tent pole, for example, or a, a tent, uh, put the tent post right there at 532. So on your way to get to 532 that holds up, and that's the high point of this high jump, we have three steps that get us up to the fourth one in 532. We also have three steps that continue down afterwards in 533 and 6-1 to 4 and 6-5 to 9. So it's important to see that whole passage. Now, how do we put together the 1, 2, 3, 4 leading up to 32? Uh, this is where the passage even gets more complex. And as I studied it, I began to realize, you know, Paul is borrowing the pattern that happened in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. And when I realized that, I was very grateful that my wife, Dr. Joy Fleming, had done her studies there. Remember back in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, we have just a high jump. We have a chiasm. We have a large rainbow pattern. There we have an A, B, C, D, C prime, B prime, A prime pattern. So in A, God puts the man into the Garden of Eden. And then in the far end, on A prime, he chases him out of the Garden of Eden. And the high point there is where they were naked and unashamed in a perfect relationship with one another and in a perfect relationship with God. And so Paul builds on that perfect relationship, that high jump from Genesis 2 and 3. I'm sure he taught that many, many times. He'd studied that in all of his rabbinical training. He knew what the pattern was in Genesis 2 and 3. And now he's repeating it. Very bold to do that. And he starts in 522 and he builds all the way up to the top. One, two, three, four, and then he comes down afterwards, three, two, one. And uh, just to introduce this idea of Christ and the church being united in one body, the great revelation that he gives to us, the great mystery revealed, he quotes the verse from Genesis 2.24 when he talks about the two will become one flesh. And that's the verse that uh, has that great word in there about unity and oneness. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. We have the God three and one as one. And now he says in Genesis 2.24, we have the husband and wife united as one. And, and he quotes this wonderful unity from the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2.24. He quotes that in 5.31. And then he goes on to make the statement, there is something even better that we are experiencing now. And he calls this the great mystery. And mysteries are something in the New Testament not that are hidden and are difficult to figure out. Mysteries in the New Testament are things that were hidden, but now are revealed. And so he says, here it is. Here's the great mystery. And what's he talking about? Christ and the church. So the unity of Christians with each other and with Christ is that great, wonderful high point. That's what we get to live now as we're walking together, filled with the Spirit, all the way at the summit of Paul's illustrations. It really changes how we read the passage, doesn't it? Seeing that jump, jump, high jump. I can't help but jump on that idea because jump. Uh, the, the concept that 
people have is that this this the last verses here in chapter five are the are a long passage on marriage. And it's not. It's not a long passage on marriage. It's a long passage on Christ and the church. Completely changes the timbre. We're going to look at two more uh, sub-patterns that you found, and they're in chapters 5, 22 through 31, and chapter uh, 5, 33 through 6, 9. What he's doing now is he's got the three steps that build their way up to the fourth point. And so we have verses 22 through 24, then we have 25 through 27, and then we have 28 through 31. And in the middle of each of these three, we have a key idea and this is where he's using now what he found in Genesis 2 and 3, which is a linchpin pattern. So a linchpin, linchpin pattern has two main ideas in the middle, one that goes down to the next section, and then one that goes up to the previous section. If you take a look at Ephesians 5.25 then, just as, so it's the second part of verse 25, just as also Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. So we have Christ loving the church, that concept, he expands on that in 25, 26, and 27. And then he picks that up, he links it down to the section that starts with verse 28. In 25, again, where he talks about love the church and gave himself for it, that part, the give himself for it, he links that back up to 523, where he ends verse 23, he says, he is savior of the body. So how did he give himself up? Well, as savior for the body. So it's a pattern of a linchpin where we've got three ideas in the first section from 22 to 24, and the last section from 28 to 31. Those are linked with the main verse, 525b, and the two key concepts are Christ loved the church and he gave himself for it. I don't want us to get over, over, uh, over complicated here. It's a pretty simple pattern. Christ loved the church. Christ gave himself for it. And so when we're filled with the Spirit, what are we called to do? We're called to love as Christ loved the church. And we're called to give ourselves as Christ gave of himself. Now, some people get tangled up in the following verses, and they think that husbands are supposed to be uh, the great high priest for their wife, and they're supposed to sacrifice, and wives aren't. And I don't know. It gets very confused. That's not what he's trying to say here at all. He's trying to say that we've got three points, but they're summed up in two. Christ loved the church, and he gave himself for it. That's how, when we're filled with the Spirit, we act. We love, and we're self-sacrificial. We give ourselves for the others. Wow, that's a huge amount of teaching just in that sub-pattern that you described. But now could you talk about verses 533 through chapter 6-9? Right. And... So in the book Beyond Eden, Ephesians 5 and 6, we're going to get into this in detail in later chapters, but let's talk about it right now. 533 is a very controversial passage, and people have made a lot of, a lot of uh, they've built a lot of teaching on top of this verse that isn't really in the verse. And it's become quite problematic, especially in a lot of books on teaching on marriage. And they've, they've, they've come up with things that just aren't in the passage at all. There are two hook words in verse 33. The first one is nevertheless, and the other one is the word fear. And like I say, we'll go into this later on. But what he's doing in verse 33, when he says nevertheless, he's referring us very, all the way back to the verse that introduced this whole high jump pattern. That's 521. 
So he talks about submitting yourselves one to another okay, in the fear of God, uh, in the fear of Christ. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. There's the two hooks, submitting yourselves and in the fear of Christ. So he says in verse 33, let every one of you love his wife as himself and the wife that she fears her husband. And basically what he's saying is, I'm going to now talk about what's going on in the house, in the, in the household. And what's going on in the, in the home is that we have a husband and wife, and they're in a mutually submitting, reciprocally building up one another relationship as they fear Christ. So believers in Christ now, they are united. And this is the perfect other side to verse 32. Verse 31 was Garden of Eden, the first man and the first woman, woman are married and have a perfect relationship with one another. And now in 533, every Christian household, the husband and wife are united with one another and they have a perfect relationship, mutually submitting each one to the other. Then he moves down to the rest of the family structure in 6.1. And this is where the chapter break in 6 is problematic. The chapter break shouldn't arrive until down to verse 10, uh, because this is all part of this giant high jump. Anyhow, it talks about children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. So we've got children, obey your parents. Who are your parents? Well, your father and your mother. And when he gets down to verse 4, he keeps, keeps on. He says, and parents, don't provoke your children to wrath, etc. Some translations have mistranslated, I think, in verse 4, and they say, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, as if it's only for him. But in, in Hebrews, where it talks about the parents of Moses, same word is used. In Colossians, same word is used. And in every case, it should be parents. So he's talking about children over your parents. And then in verse 5, parents, be good to your children. Why? It's always because in the Lord, of the Lord. This is a Christian household. So as much as is possible, yes, the kids do obey, but... We are also mutually submitting to and building up one another. That attitude is supposed to fill our parenting relationship with our kids and our kids' relationship to us when they become teenagers, especially. <laughs> They're supposed to be loving the Lord and growing together with us, the parents. Now, in verse 5, it's interesting. Now we move on to the slaves or the servants. And it says, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh. In other words, I don't see that they are masters, really. You know, in Christ, we are together. And when you get down to verse 9, he talks about masters act the same way as I just told the servants to act. So there's really no big distinction made by Paul. But he's talking again about mutually submitting one to another, being filled with the Spirit, in unity with Christ. The whole passage from 522 to 69, mutually submitting in Christ, the great mystery revealed. It just transforms the whole passage when you see it that way. And it really brings in the deeper teaching of Christ among Christ's body. Well, basing your answer on the key idea found in Ephesians 5.32, we're keeping with that, then what would you say that Paul is seeking to convey in Ephesians 5.22? All right, so 5.22 is the beginning of this long section. And therefore, it's building on and explaining what happened in 521. So 521 is where he's reconstructed the word, the vertical relationship of somebody that's over and somebody that's under who submits to that person who's over. Instead, he makes it reciprocally submitting one to another. And then in verse 22, 
a lot of people want to go here. This is where people want to go to this verse right away and say, see, this is how we should live. And I, I've been saying, wait a minute, we got to find out what the context is. And once we find out what the context is, we almost don't even have to read the words in here. We have the basic general idea of the love of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ. But let's look at verse 22. Oh, and we don't find a verb. There's no verb in verse 22 in the Greek. When that happens in Greek, you got to go back and you pick up the verb from the previous sentence. So we pull that down. What is that? That's the reconstructed, Christianized verb of mutually submitting yourselves one to another. And in verse 22, he talks about wives and their and husbands. And what he's saying then is, okay, now we're continuing this relationship. I'm going to talk about wives and husbands. I'm going to talk about some more. And we'll look at that later on. But he's not talking about a, a vertical relationship where wives are subordinate to and submitting to their superior husbands who are ruling over them. The example we would have of that was from Genesis chapter 3, where the rebellious sinner, first-degree eater, Adam, was, well, she was warned that he was going to rule over her as if he was the only human being and that, as if she was one of the animals. So that's not where, that's, that wouldn't be good theology, although people teach that. So what we do have instead is that mutually submitting one to another, wives and husbands in the Lord, that's how you're living that out. Then we get down to this other passage, and I already touched it on a little bit in Ephesians 6, 5. Even in the obviously uh, subordinate relationship of a servant to the masters, I'm going to linger on verse eight and 9. Let me read that. And you masters do the same things unto them. And, uh, you know, without threatening, knowing that your master also in heaven is there, and there's no respect of persons with him. So what people come to here, they're looking for two things, and they're usually wrong. They say, oh, we've got the long passage on marriage at the end of chapter 5. No, that's not what we have. And then they say, oh, we've got a household code which, which follows the Roman pattern of the structure of the family and the hierarchy and the subordination in the traditional family. Actually, we don't have that either in chapter 6. We have a whole wonderful relationship pivoting around the tent pole verse in 532. And that's the title of this book, uh, or the subtitle, The Great Mystery Revealed, Mutually Submitting in Christ. Thanks for listening to the Eden Podcast. Do you have your own copy of The Book of Eden, Genesis 2-3, to and our other books on the seven key passages on women and men in the Bible? visit our website at true316.com. Do you want to go deeper? You're invited to enroll in the current study unit of True School. Take a look. Go to true316.com slash school.